right, beloved, it is really good to be home. Um, I'm going to ask that you find the book of Daniel in your Bibles or the table Bibles. It follows the major prophet Ezekiel. So we have the first of the minor prophets in the book of Daniel. And that way we will be prepared. Um, you have, um, and I would ask that you bring back next week, uh, or you can leave here and then just take at the end of our time together um, a little uh, booklet that's going to guide our time with some questions that we might or might not use. Uh, so some background as to why Daniel. I guess first, why the prophets? I really believe that we are in a threshold time. We're in one of those holy times um, in which we are privileged to um, be prepared to participate in the new that God is seeking to do in our midst. So um, many of us are familiar with the Isaiah passage in which uh, we hear God saying to us, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not see it? Do you not yet perceive it? And there are days where I go, yes, I can see it, I can feel it, and other days where it's like, nope, nope, uh-uh. The hard part about threshold times is that they are times in which we need to begin to let go of the way that things have been. Um, and letting go tenderly precedes taking hold of the new. And one of the reasons that I think it's helpful in this season to grapple um, with the poets and, their, and the prophets and their word for us is that I think that they provide a model for how to let go and a model for how to be emptied of our preconceived ideas of what should be in order that we might be ready to participate with God in the unfolding of the new. So what I hope for our conversations is that we're going to weave some reflection on the biblical text um, with uh, actual reflection on the context in which we find ourselves and the particularities of the downtown Canton community because our mission field begins at the doorstep of this church. And as um, Michael and Dave remind us every week, we are to be Christ in the city. The mystics would remind us, or Teresa of Avila, that we're to be Christ's eyes and Christ's hands and Christ's heart. And in order to do that, um, I really believe that we have to be then dwelling, not just seeking to abide with God, but knowing that we are ever dwelling in God's midst. And exile is often the context in which to be reminded of that. So, in the book of Daniel, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible, in part because it's 12 short chapters, and you get this whole sweep in these 12 short chapters um, that interweaves very intentional practice with a journey that the prophet did not want to take. So let's look at the context. We have a whole generation that have been moved out of everything they know. Now, true confessions here, during um, the transitional period in Chicago, where I was the transitional EP, I would meet once every four to six months for breakfast with Rabbi Yehiel Pupka, who, and, and study the Torah with him. And we'd argue like no tomorrow. And, and Rabbi Pupka 
was emphatic that this was a historical period of time and that we Christians are way too metaphorical. To which I responded, well, we look at the Torah and um, we look at the prophets through the lens of the gospel and it is canonical and it is to speak into this time and into this place. We never agreed on anything. But we had a wonderful time studying the scripture. Oh, I love Rabbi Pupka. <laughs> so, I want to be really clear that I am coming at this text through the lens of the gospel. Oh my goodness, look who's here. <laughs> this is so much fun, we haven't seen each other yet. <laughs> and so, in this context of exile, we have this king named Nebuchadnezzar. I think you all have heard about him before. He is a brilliant strategist. I mean, absolutely brilliant. And this is where we begin to see um, the relationship between our present context and that of the Babylonian exile. Nebuchadnezzar's moving against Jerusalem, and his strategy is beautifully executed. He seeks to undo a nation by removing an entire generation of leadership. I want you to think about what it would look like if we had all of our new graduates out of college, all of the brightest and best of the United States pulled out and planted in Russia and in Korea, North Korea, that is. But it doesn't stop there. He, he's going to undo Jerusalem by removing a whole generation of leadership. And while it took two more invasions to complete the fall of Jerusalem, the victory was assured as he carried this whole generation from their hometown. But that's not the whole strategy. He understood the importance of friendly captivity. Think of this. Daniel and his friends and the other people who were carried into exile were to be trained in the king's court. What an honor. What a privilege. And not only that, they were to share the same food. They were to be anesthetized by the incredible royal food that was served up every day. For those of you who have worked in executive service, think about the best executive boot camps that you've ever been to. They feed and wine and dine well. So the goal there is to convert an entire generation of Israelites to Babylonian ways. So I want us to pause and I want us to read the first eight verses, which is going to be actually a little challenging because, well, the way in which our scripture lays it out, it goes into a second pericope, but I know we can do it. So I'm going to bring the mic around and, oh, we have one. Um, Dan's going to bring the mic to see who would like to read those verses for us. Oh, how encouraging of you, Pastor. Oh, boy. <laughs> Way to go, Fred. 
Debbie, the first eight, eight verses over here. First eight verses, the first chapter. Yes, please, sir. Okay. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master Ashpenaz to come to, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with wisdom, knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of that time they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine, so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What did you hear in that text? What jumped out at you as Michael read? The Lord let. Does God really do that? Michael. Well. <laughs> How many press? No, see, it's not. Do you think it's because I'm? Can you hear? He was. I'm gonna let. Does this work now? If Pam's going no. This Oh, yeah. Well, and, and as we, ooh, I think it's in and out. It may be this cord. All right, so this is really important. We all know, um, with, thank you, within the Hebrew tradition that names are a piece of our identity, our core identity. So with their new Babylonian names, they're being given the privilege of trading out one identity for another. That's big stuff. What else did you hear in that text? Wouldn't it also have significance if taking the vessels and not the word 
They were no longer available um, to the people of Israel. And we're going to come to those um, in a few short chapters and uh, look at, um, well, a very difficult time for Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So we'll swing back, but that, that's significant. Daniel commits to um, not being defiled by the changes. Which is, so think about it. So here we are as people of faith, and we're called to be in the world, but not of it. And how do we missionally engage with our culture without losing our, um, our identity? And specifically, how does he do that, Edith? This points to dietary. Yeah, so Daniel's saying, I'm not eating at that table. I imagine that they probably had some pretty good pork. <laughs> you know, I, I just think roasted on a spit. Yeah. Here's what uh, Terrence Longman, I will tell you that the two um, commentators that I found most helpful in preparing for this, just, you know, owning some of the language, the faithful living in a culture of seduction, um, coming to terms with exile, um, come from Walter Brueggemann. Although my mother said, you know, if he could just say it in a single sentence instead of three paragraphs. <laughs> I still love his work. And... Um, and Terrence Longman, who teaches at Westmont. Um, and just, uh, Westmont has some terrific faculty. And he wrote the NIV application Bible, don't hold him against it, that is the NIV. Longman says this, Daniel endured much cultural assimilation, yet he knew where it was appropriate for him to draw the line of distinction. Daniel endured much cultural assimilation yet he knew where it was appropriate for him to draw the line of distinction. I want you to ponder, and I'll, I'll finish out the quote, what that might mean for us. Daniel offers a faithful model and core practices um, by which we can remember God's call to us as Christians, um, that we are to be blessed in order to be a blessing. Um, and my sense is, and these are Debbie words, is that he doesn't simply offer us a pattern of behavior, but rather he offers multiple strategies for cultural engagement. And so I want to invite us now um, just to take a couple of minutes at our tables and then we'll kind of report in. What does it mean for us? What cultural assimilation do we need to be more attentive to? And where do we draw the line of distinction? How are we, in this time and in this place, being called by God to reach out into our community, to bear the face of Christ? Um, and yet at the same time, what are the distinctives that we're not going to trade out? Um, my good friend Stan Ott of Vital Churches would call this loose tight. What are we tight about? Non-negotiable. I would say our core identity in Christ, for starters. And what can we yield freely in order to invite people into a journey of transformation? So let's take some table time. You might actually want to begin with, um, if Babylonia was a culture of seduction, how are we? 
in the 21st century United States a culture of seduction? And how are we being urged to assimilate to our culture and where do we draw the line of distinction? You're going to see those questions for reflection in your worksheets. So let's just take a couple of minutes and then we'll come back together. And you thought I wasn't going to make you work. Our roving mic man is going to check in with the tables. So culture of seduction. In what ways do we live in a culture of seduction? Fred here has some thoughts to share. One word. Materialism. Materialism. We talked about um, the culture of happiness, that we have to be happy, and how it takes more and more of whatever to make you happy. And in the long run, it actually doesn't make you happy. <laughs> so your happiness decreases when you're focusing on yourself and not others, necessarily. Absolutely. My guest this morning, in correlation with materialism, instant gratification in our society today. Right, which goes, ties back with that happiness. I agree with the materialism, but um, what really differentiates us from past generations, I think, is the uh, internet and how we're all connected and say, if you have something that I don't have, I can see that and covet that and desire that and uh, be seduced by that. Yeah, you know, as um, Dan is moving... It's interesting to see the number of folks who were um, part of the creation of Facebook and other social media who will not allow their children to use it and will not have it in their household. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about individualism, uh, the meism of our age, and um, definitions of justice, what would, be, what would a, a faith understanding of justice be versus a cultural understanding of justice? Where, where do they meet up and where do they um, separate? So share some more on that. Um, what, what is, well, we didn't get much farther than that. Um, I mean, I think you can take almost any issue of our day and play with this, healthcare being one, um, how we take care of the poor, mm-hmm. you know, and the church is in on all of the discussion on that. And I'm not even saying the church comes down in one side or the other on a lot of this stuff, but we're continuing a dialogue. We continue a dialogue. Um, 
which is probably important for us to ferret out for ourselves where the church, I mean, what is, it, what is the prophet but the one who, who stimulates the conversation and forces us to, to ask these kind of questions? Well, and then that presses us to that, that loose, tight place where, in fact, it's like, yes, we can engage and participate in the culture, but there are those, no, I'm not trading out my core identity. You've taken away my name, but you're not going to take away my identity. Um, any other thoughts before we read a little bit further and then um, reflect on um, Daniel and his four friends and, and their sense of what it means to um, where they draw the line of distinction and the implications for that? Dan? This is just a comment and a question out of my ignorance, but... Daniel is resisting the Babylonian influence. Is the Babylonian influence political, religious, or both? Because I think, I think that helps us understand part of what we're talking about in Dave's comment about justice. We're, who defines the justice? And, and, and you can comment as we, maybe as we go, but for me it would be helpful to understand the Babylonian uh, takeover, the Babylonian influence. Oh, it's all of the above. And I don't think that there is that... Um, simple compartmentalization that becomes such a strong part of our world that this is my faith life and um, I'm going to now go to the gym and be physically fit and I'm going to do my work with my theory group or my therapist or my whomever and be emotionally healthy. There's the integration of all these pieces. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was working across levels in terms of identity um, and and he was going to make use of this raw talent as he trained them up. So think about um, how many um, companies, for example, do their own training program because they want to grow them up. And quite frankly, how many churches? I mean, before I came as general presbyter to Muskingum Valley, there was a lot of fussiness over people who hadn't gone to a Presbyterian seminary. Now that's a bounded set response. Um, and, you know, and so there's a balancing act in the midst of this, but we have to have that understanding of who and whose we are in order to know. I mean, Daniel ultimately became the senior statesman to King Nebuchadnezzar. So it wasn't that he didn't serve that king, but he served the king with boundaries. It's like I'm in exile, and I am not going to fail to give witness to the source of my strength and my identity. But how many times are we afraid to name our core identity in Christ? Oh, we don't want to offend anybody. You know, the greatest gift I received from Rabbi Pufka, I'm invited and he's gathered all the major rabbis of the city of Chicago. And he wants me to talk about who I am. Thank you, Rabbi Pufka. And so I begin to build out all those places where we can meet, those common places. And he goes, we could have said the same thing, Debbie. Who are you? At which point I thought, okay. And I began to talk about the distinctiveness of my faith and who I was. And, um, and then began to look at the role of community-based transformation and organizational development through the lens of my core identity in Christ and my character being transformed daily um, through morpha'o, that sense of, you know, how do I yield to God that God might take hold? He goes, that's much better. Can we do a two-sentence 
uh, well, it's not bound, centered, bounded, centered, formational. So um, there is this great book that I know you all are going to run out. Don't go get it. It's called Transforming Worldviews, um, and it was written by a missiologist who taught at Fuller, and I can't remember his name right now, but it'll come to me. Um, and basically, what he identified was bounded set theology or bounded set organizations um, actually have an in and out. So um, I, I used to teach for many years over at Ashland, and I taught with Terry Wardle. We did back-to-back -back person in ministry and person in leadership. And, um, and Terry once consulted with the church where in the bylaws you could not wear open-toed shoes. As he liked to say, that had nothing to do with scripture and had a lot to do with whoever wrote the bylaws and some unresolved issues that they better go get some good therapy for. <laughs> because our, our spiritual identity and our emotional health and our mental acuity are all gifts of God. Um, and so the whole Jesus, um, Arthur Ramsey, when he was Archbishop of Canterbury, used to say, the whole Jesus demands the whole person. So a bounded set theology, a bounded set organization is going to have rules by which you're in or out. So, you know, if you believe such and such and you express such and such in these exact words, then you can come become one of us. But you begin to stray across those boundaries. You begin to go happy all the time. What do you mean there's darkness? <laughs> to Mitch, my response is, the most significant things in Jesus' life happened in the dark. We'll come back to that. So, bounded set, you gotta believe these, it's very doctrinal, it is very um, in-out, and, um, and you have an absolute clarity because you know. Usually what happens is if somebody talks about the fact that I'm feeling this pressure to be happy all the time and I'm not, then the first response is very pastoral. Well, if you just spent a little more time with God in prayer, everything would be okay. But if the questions persist, oh, we're going to draw a circle around that person because they could infect the whole body. Now, centered set is... I'm okay, you're okay. If, in fact, each one of us is committed to getting to Jesus in our own way, then we need to honor that. But do you hear what we're doing there? There we're trading out the accountability um, to really test against the fruit of the Spirit, our behaviors. So, you know, you are following Jesus, but you're going home and beating your spouse at night, but you're still trying to follow Jesus. And there's a tension in that. A formational set would look at Jesus' earthly journey and say, what does it mean for us to follow the model of Christ in our daily life and our daily living? How are we going to become degree by degree by degree more like Jesus? How many of you have heard of Henry Nouwen before? So Henry Nouwen would say the gospel simply put, is to become like Jesus. So if you look at a bounded set, all of a sudden we're imposing our rules and our own insecurities behind that in terms of how we, you know, 
really believe we should be and believe. And with the centered set, we're saying as long as the heart wants to follow Jesus, it doesn't matter if the, um, their life doesn't reflect it yet, maybe someday. But a formational set is making the commitment daily to, to look at how we are going to wake up and grow up in Christ. How are we going to become more like Jesus? And what does that actually mean as we look at his earthly journey? Now, I could take us off on a whole other piece on that. Edith, is there anything you think we should add to that for our work and definitions of now? I mean, that's a whole other class. And why you brought it up in reference to Daniel. Right. That, that Daniel's functioning from a formational set, not from a bounded set. So if he had been rigid, there would have been revolt. Correct. You know, and, and if he had been centered, he would have been flying all over the place. But from the formational place, he's able to hold on to, this is the core of my relationship to God and others, and the rest of it is, is extra. Right. We can, yes. Paul Hebert, by the way, is the name, name of the man who wrote the book. <laughs> So are you basically saying that we as Christians, and particularly, you know, I think of this country, are really in exile, and we have to figure out where we are ourselves are going to be in that, you know, are we going to be formational? Or are we? Right. So we have to figure that out. Yes, exactly. How did Joseph do? Well, exactly. I mean, he was rejected from family had to succumb to another culture. Well, and he was a rather immature pissant. <laughs> <laughs> and God used it all. <laughs> it's a theological term, Dave. I will be using it in the pulpit. Well, you are on the air. All right, let's go back. <laughs> let's go back. And um, pick up with verse 8, because it's worth reading two times. Where did I put my Bible? Oh, here's my Bible. Um, and if somebody would read that full pericope. Oh, we're not going to cover as much as I thought we might, but that's a-okay. So uh, if somebody would pick up with 8 and go through verse 16. Sure. The I words are NIV. fine. Do not let him psych you out. <laughs> I do have an NIV, so. Oh, I have a TNIV. I'm sorry. It's all good. I thought at one point it was a good one. <laughs> um, actually, it is, except for the Pauline literature. And that's okay. another conversation. Okay. <laughs> but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Just that verse? No, keep going through 16. Oh, okay. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servant in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were, were to drink and gave them the vegetables instead. Wow. They were mad. <laughs> Look at these, um, you know, these strategies that are sort of moving in and out. Isn't it awesome? You know, there's this beautiful art of negotiation here. It's like, I'm going to draw the line, but I'm not going to be in your face about it. Um, and, and so in the midst of this, we find that they have created a way by which... Goodbye, pastors. Um, they can actually not push the guard past the level of his comfort. I mean, the guard's response is about, look, I I'm afraid of getting in trouble. And they honor the reality that, in fact, they could be putting him at risk. There's a real gracious intentionality in all of this. And these are young men, by the way. I mean, we're talking about young adults who evidence incredible maturity in their response there. Any thoughts on the implications then for those times when we let our yes be yes and our no be no? What, what strikes me is that um, that we don't have to defend what's true. We just ask for the opportunity for that to become evident. That if what God has placed before us is true, that will be displayed. We don't have to fight and, and argue. How many arguing Christians have we encountered in our lives, even within the household of faith? Yeah, it, there's a real freedom in that and power. We can let God be God. So I want to take a little bit of time because um, I really believe Daniel offers up some extraordinary practices for us. And I want to look um, at the practice of prayer and fasting. Note the and. You cannot have one without the other. If you engage in fasting without prayer, it's a bad form of dieting, uh, truly. So uh, aside from medical fasting, how many of you have actually engaged in the practice of fasting? Rarely. <laughs> yeah, so a cross-section of us. Um, I would say to you uh, that what's interesting to me, if you read through the Hebrew scriptures, there is never any instruction on how to pray and fast. And I, um, Richard Foster believes that's because it was such an integral part of Jewish custom and daily living that there was no need. It was orally handed down. It was handed down through the experience that many of us have had of learning how to cook that it wasn't that we were given a cookbook and expected to cook. Somebody actually 
walked us through the steps and modeled it. In fact, there probably wasn't even a cookbook. In the same way, it wasn't that somebody was given a little pamphlet to read on fasting. It was part of the community, shared community experience and the community rhythm of life. And it found its way in. Now, I would tell you, my friend Rabbi Pupka, he hates to fast. And he gets in a really grumpy mood when he has to prepare for a fast. I pray for his wife. And I would also say, in my personal experience, I have found fasting to be a profound experience, but I do way better with it when I'm fasting in community. I love to go on retreats where there is a commitment to be in fasting, in part because it doesn't distract us then with um, all that comes with food preparation and the actual eating and the cleanup. Um, and, you know, in that context, I... Um, you know, I think that it allows us then to be more present to God. Here's an interesting quote that comes from Brian Taylor in his book, Becoming Christ. He writes, self-denial is profoundly contemplative for it works by the process of human subtraction and divine addition. Augustine said this, our hands are too full to receive of the good that God desires to give us. So part of what I want to um, encourage you all to think about is what one thing might you fast from this week? And instead of that time, I've already told Dick we're not having a glass of wine. We're going to use that time for prayer. He's like, I hate when you get in this place. But, you know, because I want to say it's not all whole cold turkey. Daniel fasted from rich foods. He didn't fast from eating altogether. And I do have to wonder if his blood type was A, because then he would do better on a vegetarian diet. But the reality is that there are things that we get rather attached to, more attached perhaps than we'd like to admit, um, from which we can set that aside for a set time, and take that time instead and commit it to prayer. Because remember, it is prayer and fasting. Or it might be that the fasting comes um, with social media, for those who participate in social media, um, that you're going to post on uh, Facebook or Instagram, I'm taking a week off, folks. Or I'm only going to check it once a day. Or a uh, fast can... Um, be from a particular behavior that you just think you've been indulging too much. But here is the reality. Kenosis, emptying, is at the heart of what it means to become like Jesus. And Daniel understood something of what gets in the way of our relationship with God. He knew that if he was eaten all that rich and wondrous food, that he would actually then um, he wouldn't have the clarity in his time of prayer. He wouldn't have the focus. He wouldn't have the energy that would allow him um, to engage in that delicate balancing act of serving his God even in exile. So I want us to take just a moment, and we're going to come back together to finish up, at our tables to reflect on what might I fast from 
um, in this coming week. As I engage in a practice that was very central to Daniel's ability to both live in exile and lead in exile. And as you do that, I want you to be reminded of the one, our Lord, who emptied himself, not only of food, but of divine privilege in the incarnation, um, in order that we might um, be afforded, you know, the opportunity uh, to become more like Jesus. Uh, I just want to see if there's anything more. No, I'm not going to say anything more right now. Take a moment, though, and, and just uh, take a second to ponder yourself and then talk at table about what might it look like. Um, what one thing might you just yield for this week? All right, folks, take one more minute, and then we're going to come back together. anyone who is willing to make a public commitment to what they are going to fast from in this coming week? Yes, ma'am. Well, wow. Everybody needs to pray for this girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. really? Catherine, excellent. I know, so I'm because I'm graduating this year, and so I spend a lot of my time worrying about all the decisions that I have to make. And wow. so we're we're gonna go for a week, and maybe not do that. We'll see. So, <laughs> so what I was gonna share with everybody was, um, you go back every time you feel tempted or you find yourself moving back toward yeah. toward worrying. Say. Go back to the memory verse. Inscribe um, Daniel 1, 8, but Daniel resolved. Yeah. Daniel but Daniel resolved. resolved. And I can resolve. You know, um, not to be defiled by my worry. Not to, or another translation for that is not to be set apart from God by my worry. Thank you. <laughs> That's a powerful powerful piece it's so perfect because when when you said prayer and fasting so if she says i'm not going to worry and then she prays she's you know i like that i'm i'm going to try that too well and you know what's interesting have any of you read daniel um duhigg's book the power of habit it's isn't it a fabulous book charles duhigg um Basically, you cannot just simply stop one thing. You have to replace it with another thing. So 
we set aside worrying and replace it with prayer. And I just said that to my group. The Deb didn't comment on what the proportions was or how this proportioned out, prayer and fasting, but that you answered your own question, my own question. Super. God did. (laughs) Anyone else want to go public? Can't. Wait a minute, here he comes. Noteworthy at the end of their fast that they were considered fatter and that was considered better in their culture. (laughs) Well, my translation says healthier. Mine says fatter. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone else? Jack. I can do one. uh, uh, One of the sermons uh, focused on a manual. And I resolved, it's finished now, but I resolved that during the Christmas season, every embolment I saw of commercialism with respect to Christmas, I would see a manual. Wow. And it it was a wonderful experience. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, thank you all. Um, I I hope if you haven't realized yet, we're going to be teaching one another. We're going to be challenging one another. Um, And we are going to be real intentional, um, with all due respect to Rabbi Pukka, about how this informs our daily living in this time and in this place and in this context. So I want to finish with the last um, few verses of Daniel 1 as um, as we get ready to go prepare for worship. When we are faithful, um, God shows up in powerful ways. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Just an aside there, you know, there is strong, strong um, uh, understanding that Jesus' time in Egypt was really significant. Um, And putting him in houses of learning and granting him access in his earthly journey to a much broader understanding that he obviously would have had if he'd grown up in Nazareth. And I think we need to understand for these four young youth, they chose to retain their core identity in Yahweh, in God. And they sifted through to discern what is, um, what is necessary And how might we engage in the culture? And one of the ways in which these young men engaged in the culture was to indeed um, engage with the culture of learning into which Nebuchadnezzar placed them. They understood that to reject the the studies, because the, the finest libraries in the world at that time were in Babylon, would be to reject an opportunity to serve God through better understanding the culture in which they found themselves. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Now you can imagine that here they have done this work, and there were probably Babylonians who lost their seating to them, And we're going to see some of those tensions surface in the coming chapters. 
In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's not think that we are going to hurry our way through exile. For such a time as this, God has called us. And the reality and the privilege and the challenge is that we get to lay the foundation, I would actually say for the next 500 years. But it means we've got to be willing to dwell in exile and sift through what we let go of and what we keep hold of. Will you pray with me? Holy God, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Daniel, for the model that he provides of not only self-differentiation, but, but of faithfulness. In this coming week, as we each one in different ways commit to, to fasting from one thing, may we in that fasting find that we are resolved in our prayer as we dwell with you and abide with you and live with you. All this we pray in the name of Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Thank you all. See you next week.